This is Greener Grass, a podcast. We are your hosts, Carrie Wee and Kelly McVeigh. We hope that you are having a wonderful Memorial Day weekend here in the United States. And uh, yeah, to celebrate that, we have retired Marine Corps Captain John McKinley. He was an decorated combat Marine who served as infantry officer while in the United States Marine Corps. And we're lucky enough to be able to interview him today and really get his perspective on things and his experience. So, uh, so excited to share this interview with you. Let's get started. This is a special um, podcast today because we wanted to celebrate the amazing holiday, which is today because this is airing today on Memorial Day. And John, I was lucky enough to meet you. Sal has so many friends and network across the U.S. And I feel like every time I meet one of his friends, um, I'm like, these guys are incredible. So we've actually had a few people on that know Jeff. And you um, came to mind because I got the chance to have dinner, drinks, and learn a little bit more um, about your life. And so just to start off, John McKinley, I would love for you to give us a little bit of background on where you grew up, um, when where you grew up, and anything about your childhood crazy that would be interesting. Well, it was a it was somewhat of a well traveled youth, I would say. I was born in Michigan, in West Michigan, and we moved to Ohio, um, to Canton, Ohio, when I was thirteen years old. Um, we were only there for maybe a year and a half, and then we moved back to Michigan. And then from there, I ended up in Ohio, back in Cleveland for a year playing hockey. And then I ended up in Indiana at a military boarding school to finish my last two years of high school playing hockey. And then um, ultimately ended up in Columbus at Ohio State with the tensions of playing hockey there. And that I got hurt my freshman year. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out for me. But I stayed and um, I looked at other options for hockey and that didn't work out for me. So I ended up staying in Columbus and graduating college there and moved back to Michigan to work with my family. And then from there, things kind of took a turn like most people's lives did on 9-11. And um, post 9-11, I had recently been married and decided I wanted to join the Marine Corps. And it took me a couple of years to, to get that process set up. And then I ended up joining the Marine Corps and went to Virginia for a couple of years for my training. Well, about a little over a year for my training there uh, as an officer. And then it landed me in Southern California being based out of Camp Pendleton. And here I am, I'm still in Southern California, haven't left. So the Marine Corps dropped us off out here and then ended up staying post Marine Corps and still live here and have started our life out on the West coast. Anyone that grew up in Columbus and Michigan, I wouldn't argue landing in South Carolina, South California and never leaving. I mean, I, I love California so much. Okay. So I didn't know that you went to military school for a brief blip before, you know, hockey and Ohio state. Do you feel like being in military school gave you that little moment and that little picture of what that looked like, which then in turn, when nine 11 happened, you already kind of had that in your background or no, it did. So the, I didn't go to, it was Culver military Academy or the Culver Academy is where I went. There's also Culver girls Academy and it's two schools are, are one in the same. They just separate the, the, 
the boys and the girls in their leadership programs. Um, so the women have their own leadership system, which they call the Culver's Girl, Culver Girls Academy. And then Culver Military Academy was the boys' side of which the leadership program was military-based. Uh, but I had several friends from Culver that, that went on to the various um, military academies to Annapolis and West Point and out to the Air Force Academy from there. And it was certainly part of what drove me back you know, to the Marine Corps post uh, moving back to Michigan. One of my closest friends who was from Columbus um, that I went to Culver with, he went to the Naval Academy and he went there specifically to go from the Naval Academy into the Marine Corps to become an infantry officer. He had his life plan mapped out at, I don't know, 11 or 12 when his, when his parents would tell me, but he would come back from the Naval Academy on the weekends and hang out with us and do the normal college life on the weekends. And then he'd go back to Annapolis and I would go visit him. We went to his, um, his graduation and it was always kind of in the back of my mind, but it never really kind of worked into my life plans because my father had started a business, which I was, you know, in the long term going to take over. And so that, that pipeline was kind of already built, but obviously nine 11 changed things. It changed my perspective and, Something I thought I'd wanted to do now became, you know, more of a reality and kind of a calling at that point. So, but it certainly had influence on what I was, you know, why I joined the Marine Corps and and having not, you know, having a friend who had gone through the whole Marine Corps process and, you know, listening to how he did it and what it was. And it definitely influenced my decision to go there. Okay. So 9-11, Huge. I, I mean, I can remember Emerson, not Emerson, Kenzie was a brand new baby. I was holding her, watching the Today Show on the phone with a really good friend that lived in Boston, watched the first plane, watched the second plane. I think anyone that is my age or, you know, you know, old enough to understand what was going on can remember where they were. And it, I think it changed a lot of people's lives. And I, I went to New York city, um, you know, over the holiday, like the holidays and took my kids and we went to the nine 11, um, memorial and just the buildings and all of the, just everything in there. Like it was such, so sad and so just real, but nine 11, I'm sure changed a lot of people's lives. How do you, how old were you, first of all? And do you remember where you were in that moment? I do. I was actually at home getting ready to, to go into the office. And, you know, actually, I was driving in. I think I was listening to the Howard Stern show at the time when, when I heard it. And they were, Love the Howard Stern and they were, you know, it happened and they were, you know, trying to figure out what had happened. And then the second plane hit and, you know, they were there. They're in New York City. So, and then obviously we turned on the TV at work and then the day was just kind of lost at that point and trying to, you know, process everything that was going on and then what had happened in Washington, DC. And then, you know, that the other plane going down in Pennsylvania. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think we all kind of remember I was at the time, what was I 22, I think, um, 22 or 23. So I was just, I was a year out of college at that point and had been home working for my family. And I just, it was literally a month after we got married. 
So it was a month to the day because we got I got married on August 11th. How old were you, first of all, when 9-11 happened? Uh, it must have been 20, it's like 23, 23 or 24. Yeah, 24, I think. Okay, so we're probably the same age-ish. Okay, and then do you feel like a lot of people joined in that time frame? Not necessarily the Marines, but aren't like just in general to... Because of 9-11? Yeah, I believe there was certainly uh, a, a core group of individuals that probably looked at it the same way I did. I mean, I felt like it was our generation's calling at that point, you know, to to be attacked on our own soil like we were, you know. And if there was any inclination of wanting to do it, that either drove people to it or it drove them away from it. You know, it, it might have been there was probably a combination of both. But I certainly feel that there was many people that and people that I served with that, you know, that that was their calling. Like they, they hadn't planned on it and then they decided to do it or they were maybe thinking about it and that drove them to it, uh, to join. So I think we certainly had, you know, that was just the patriotism of the American way at that point and it being compromised. Do you think, and maybe this is a later question, but do you think that that American patriotism has changed since that time frame, like, do you see America different now than then? Well, we've certainly we've gone through some tumultuous couple of years, I think, with things that we, whether you're proud of it or not, or, you know, movements that are out there, you know, people have differing opinions on, on what they value. Um, do I view it differently? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but I mean, the overall... American way of life is still, you know, the greatest in the world. So I don't, you know, I don't think we've, we've completely compromised that, but we've certainly made it more difficult for others, not necessarily the military, but, you know, maybe some in law enforcement and other things to operate, you know, the way they think they should. Um, so I, I do think there are some challenges there for sure. Okay. So the Marines, how did you choose the Marines? Like anything I've ever heard, that's like, the most difficult, top-notch, crazy, you know, are all the stories true about what you have to do to even train and um, be one of those selected few? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, you know, the Marines certainly like to title themselves the, you know, <laughs> America's tip of the spear in the 911 force, um, you know, for, for our country. But my influence certainly came from, you know, my, my very close friend who had, you know, done the Naval Academy and the Naval Academy is a feeder for the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps does fall underneath the Department of the Navy. So we didn't have our own institution. It's, it's fed by the United States Naval Academy and go and just listening to his stories. But then the Marine Corps has a unique program for officers. So I went in as an officer because I was a college graduate and, um, the Marine Corps officer program is unique from any of the other branches of service where you go to what they call officer candidate school if you're accepted. So you have to go through, you know, you have to have physical, there's a physical fitness standard and then there's some aptitude tests and some other things that you have to, to go through before you qualify. And then your package gets put up in front of a board and they select those that, um, that they feel, you know, meet the, meet the requirements of the Marine Corps. And when I looked at all the branches of service, cause I went through and looked at them all, 
I really felt like I wanted to, to go into the infantry or some sort of combat arms um, to be able to, to have the most influence on what was about to happen or potentially about to happen, which ultimately ended up being starting with the war in Afghanistan and then moving to Iraq. Um, and the fastest way to do that without, I don't know, I don't know if the least amount of risk is the right way to put it, but the Marine Corps, you go through the 10 week officer candidate school and they, they call it the world's hardest job interview because it's 10 weeks of a boot style, a boot camp style environment, but it also has attrition to it. So you go to OCF, you get accepted, you go to OCS for 10 weeks and they put you through a very rigorous physical portion of evaluation. And then on top of that, there's an academic portion, but after three weeks, they can decide that you don't, you don't meet the needs of the Marine Corps. You just aren't, aren't up to it and they can kick you out. Or after that third week, you can decide, you know what, this is, this isn't for me. You know, that's not what I thought it was going to be, or it's too much or whatever. And you have that decision to drop out and you, you have no obligation to the government at that point. Whereas all the other branches of service you have to go through, if you don't go through one of the service academies or ROTC, but if you come in off the street like I did, you have to go to boot camp, then you go to officer candidate school. If you don't make it through officer candidate school, then you fall back into the the, the general enlisted environment, and then you go you're, you're ultimately enlisted for you know those three and a half four years, and you're obligated to the government. So um, that. That pipeline was more intriguing to me on the Marine Corps side. And secondarily, the the structure to get your MOS or your military occupation specialty, which will be your job in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps sends you to a six-month school. They send all brand-new second lieutenants to the six-month school. They call it the, the basic school or TBS. And in that school, you learn to be a provisional infantry platoon commander. But then at the same time, you learn all of – the other different jobs that you could hold as an officer and they give you exposure to all of those different types of jobs. And then you can request what you want. And then ultimately the Marine Corps decides what you're going to get, but you can put in your wish list of one through 25 or however many different jobs are available. And then the, the officers and the, the staff NCOs that are over the top, you mostly the officers that are your instructors there will then decide you know, which one you best qualify for based on, you know, what your request was. So evaluating all of that criteria, the Marine Corps just, you know, it, it really fit the model that I was looking for. And I was partial to the Marine Corps because of my friends that had gone in it. And yeah, it just made the most sense for me. What was the part that really drove you in those years? The opportunity to to lead marines and you know particularly having the opportunity to lead marines in combat i still say you know is is the the most you know probably the closest thing besides having my own children that i could say to the greatest accomplishment and opportunity that i got to have in my life um because the, the the things that i witnessed and the things that you the conversations that you have and then the way that the Marines, you know, take that information and they're able to do some things on their own. And, you know, with the intent that, that I give them as a, you know, as an officer that's in charge of them at the time and, and just seeing the way that they operate, it's just very, very unique. And it was, yeah, it was very special. I mean, I can't, it's hard to describe because I don't know if I have other than coaching hockey for a period of time and, you know, having some other 
places where you're, you're in charge of, you know, or you're, you're mentoring kids that are younger than you. But in the Marine Corps, I mean, it's a different animal because it's, you know, it's life and death. I mean, we, we lived in an environment for seven months where that's what we did. And, you know, to see the way that, that these Marines would operate under the most strenuous environment you could be in was just, yeah, it was mind blowing. It was just, it's the most impressive thing I've ever seen. You know, even for my job, like coaching, leading in a non-stressful, non-life and death, death situation, like I get so attached to people and their life and how it affects every single day. Do you, do you have to compartmentalize certain things in moments or is it that you are all heart and you're in on these people's lives? Well, I would say it's a combination of both because, you know, there are times that you have to give an order to put Marines in a environment or in a spot where they are at greater risk than, you know, than others that you're putting out there, right? You're, you're developing these missions and you're moving, you know, moving people into different places. And, you know, there was risk in, in a lot of it, everything we would do from training to, you know, the actual deployment environment where it's kinetic and you know it's extremely dangerous but you do have to you do have to be prepared in the event that you know the catastrophic event happens that that you lose a marine to be able to move forward from that so you you have to you really and that's part of that training process at tbs and then we go to another school because i became an infantry officer and you go through another 10-week school solely to be an infantry officer and they teach you that there. I mean, they, they teach you to the best of their abilities, how the individual reacts when they get there is certainly on the individual, but you know, they, they set you up to be able to go through those, those mental drills of having to understand, you know, you're going to have to put yourself, but more importantly, you're gonna have to put other Marines at risk at times. And you have to be prepared in the event that something goes wrong, that you lose those Marines. And so fortunately for me, I never, I I didn't lose any, I didn't have any Marines killed that were under my charge while we were there. We had some that were attached to us and other things, but, um, you know, certainly had some get hurt that were sent home, but yeah, I mean, it gets, it's difficult uh, because your love for them is, is unconditional while you're doing that. But at the same time, you do have to prepare yourself mentally for, for the event that you might lose them. So Iraq, Afghanistan, regardless of um, politics or, you know, whether we should have been there or not been there in the moment when you're doing all of the things, do you, especially after nine 11, I think that, you know, I think 9-11 is such a catalyst to obviously why you joined, why so many people joined and just even being there. Do you feel like you're doing all the right things and that you're doing it for the right reasons in the moment? I don't know if, I don't know if that's your main mindset in the moment because the mission, the mission is the mission, right? You're given the mission by, your superior officers and and whatever that mission is and where it starts to the time that it gets down to us, because we were, you know, we were at the lowest level. We were the guys on the street that were going out looking for, you know, looking for the bad guys. We were, we did lots of different things. Um, You know, at that point, it's not our job to really think about the political aspect of it or what it is. We're just, we, we have to do what we're told to do. 
now we do look at it in a grand scheme and certainly I would sit around with some of my, you know, my fellow officers or, or staff NCOs and, and kind of talk about what progress are we making at our level? Um, because that's what we have to do. Right. You know, but from when I look back and reflect on it while we were there, I certainly felt like we were doing the right thing. We were taking a, a region of the world that had no freedoms. We were trying to gain them some freedoms. They do have some today. Um, you know, but the people, some, most of the people that weren't the ones that weren't shooting at us or trying to blow us up, most of them were, were, you know, they loved us being there. All the the normal citizens that were just trying to have their shops open or have their restaurants. I was going to ask that. Yeah. yeah, they were. Most of them were very appreciative. Do you feel like in the moment, not that you're um, getting attached to certain individuals, but that you come to to care about and respect? some of those people. Yeah. I mean, there was maybe that's deep, but no, I mean, there was, there was definitely, cause we would work. We, it was just, I mean, that those seven months were, it was a blur, but I mean, we were exposed to so many different, different scenarios. And some of them where we were working side by side with, you know, an Iraqi special forces group. And that was just what they were called, but they were, yeah, they were uh, very elementary in their their tactics and capabilities. It was our job to help teach them. And then, you know, they would go out and fight with us side by side. They, you know, weren't nearly as effective as we were, obviously. But, you know, there was some reward in being able to do that. There was some risk in it, too, which was always tough to manage as well. But at the same time, I mean, you could see the growth and there was some, there was attachment there. We would come back because we, we lived in little firm bases or, you know, wherever we stayed and we would come back and then they would, you know, get out their tea and they would want to sit down and have tea with you and interact and, you know, and thank you. And then they would ask questions and they would, you know, there was, there was a lot of rapport that would get developed um, from that side, working with a military unit. And then at the same time, we lived in the Capitol building of the Ambar province four out of every 12 days. So the way that our, our company was set up, our platoons would rotate through that, that Capitol building and we would guard it. And it was like right in downtown Ramadi. It was, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty crazy place, but uh, we would go down there and live there. And the, the governor would come down there every couple of days. And there was two individuals that were always there that were in charge. One of them was like the engineer in charge of the maintenance of the building. And the other guy was kind of the, he would prepare everything for when the governor was coming and they were there all the time. So every time when they were there, they were there and we would sit down and, you know, have dinner with them at times. And, you know, we would certainly try to get information from them using our translator. And we would, we would have some, um, we would have some other Marines there that were in charge of just Intel gathering. So, you know, those guys would ask some questions and we would ask some questions and, you know, but those guys were great. Those two individuals, you know, I remember, you know, yeah, talking to them on a day and it was great. They would cook us, you know, the local fare and we would eat it. It was sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was intimidating <laughs> to see some of the things that they would cook. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, there was definitely relationships okay. built. Um, I mean, Intel is so important. And at the time, I mean, we were under a, our country was under attack. And so did you do you feel like in moments that there are times that you have to do what you have to do to get the information that not only protects the the people that you're leading but also and not talking about you specifically but 
you know, also protects our country. Because I know that that was a time frame that we did certain things as a country. And I, you know, being in it, there is a part of me that understands. Yeah, I mean, without going into specifics, but we we had several different missions and we had, I mean, one of them, for instance, was a translator that we had. And, you know, this one isn't, you know, isn't classified by any nature, but it was, he was a translator and he lived with us and he would go out with us and certain things started to happen every time we would leave the wire and go out for missions. And all of a sudden we take RPGs from the same place or, you know, just things that didn't seem right because we were changing up routes and doing things that we were tactically taught to do. And so they ended up tapping this guy's, his telephone. Cause he did have a telephone inside the little hut that he lived in. And he would sell like DVDs and, you know, music. And I think he would have, you know, like he'd have, just food like Pringle. I don't know. He, he was able to source all this stuff. So some of the Marines were buying it from him, but ultimately once they tapped his phone line, which I couldn't believe it wasn't tapped before that. Um, but again, things were moving fast and we were in and out of, you know, firm bases, but they find out that this guy's calling out and, you know, telling, you know, telling the bad guys that we're moving. And so, yeah, like went out on a mission and he got, he got rolled up by our, our sniper team and they brought him back and, you know, he was gone forever after that. They took him to, took him to the prison and over in, in Camp Ramadi. And then, yeah, he was gone. But yeah, I mean, that type of, cause he was a guy that all the Marines liked cause they could, they could buy all their stuff from him. Right. But ultimately not all of them knew what happened, but you know, those of us that were in charge, we knew what happened. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I absolutely love, and I think this is how I met you. And then, you know, one of the things that I think shows just what, what, what kind of camaraderie comes with leading those groups and is that you now, however many years, and I'm sure you know how long ago that was, have relationships with the people that you were there with. And even I want to say from like a brotherhood, like just check on them and make sure they're okay. Because I'm sure that people, I think a lot of people don't think about the aftermath of spending those seven months, I think you said, or, you know, anytime you're in combat in that way, what that means a year from year after five years after 10 years after. And I think that you really take heart in the people that you were there with and leading and that you check on them. And if you're in their city, you show up. Um, do you think that there are a lot of people that do that in the military or do you think that your relationships that you built are unique? No, that's it. It's part of the culture. Um, you know, I, I, unfortunately in, the recent past few weeks, we had a bit of Marine who, who died in a rock climbing accident that was, he wasn't in my platoon, but he was in, um, one of our, one of the other platoons in our company, but many, many of the Marines that were in my platoon were very close to him. He had done, by the time I got to, to my unit, they had gone to Iraq for OIF one, which was in 2000, three to 2004. And then I got there in 2004 and then we deployed again late 2004 to 05. So some of those, um, some of my more senior junior enlisted Marines, if that makes sense, but they were, you know, my Lance corporals and corporals, 
they were all very tight from that first appointment. And then they came back and the company kind of got mixed up. And unfortunately, this this Marine who died a couple of weeks ago, he was a he, he was he was a definitely a, a fire plug for all of all of the Marines in our, they all kind of ran around together, but he was one of those real type A personalities and he was an amazing warfighter. Uh, and he just galvanized a lot of these guys and they all went back. I wasn't able to go, but, um, one of my fellow, his platoon commander went and his previous platoon commander, who's also a good friend of mine, he, he couldn't make the, the service, but there was probably 12 or 15 of them that all flew back to Colorado Springs to, to go to the, memorial service and spend time with his kids and you know because they all knew each other they were all they all remained very tight they would get together and go on a you know on a hunting trip every year or do something those guys always get together and so yeah i mean the bonds that were created you know they remain throughout life especially for you know some of the core groups that are built and at the same time i mean i yeah i I talked to several of my marines a couple times a year and then we have a golf outing for two other Marines that were killed while we were deployed. And we go up to that. We've been going to that golf outing for the past few years once we found out about it. And it's a tremendous organization that raises a bunch of money for the VA and a wing that was named after these two, these two were best friends and they got killed together. Um, so they, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really cool foundation that was put together, but yeah, once we found out about it now, you know, we went from three or four of us being there the first year to last year, I think we had 12 of us and I'm, sure there'll be more next year and it happens every year on veterans day. So yeah, that, that those relationships and that brotherhood and those bonds that are built, they're built and they last a lifetime without a doubt. Okay. I love that. Okay. So to wrap up and if there's anything else you want to share, you always can, but do you feel, do you share with people like, you know, uh, high schoolers or even, you know, 2023 20, when they're looking at life and like trying to decide, is that a path that you still feel like is amazing and you would, you would share to anyone to jump in? Um, is that something that you still feel strongly about? Absolutely. I mean, it, it doesn't come up as much now. I have a feeling it may start coming up a little bit more just as, some of my friends, kids get older and if they decide, you know, that's the path. And at certain times I've, uh, you know, I've been asked to have, have conversations with, um, with, you know, friends, kids about pursuing that path and what it means and, you know, how difficult or easy or, you know, kind of managing their expectation on it. You know, some things have changed certainly, you know, since, since I went through than they are now, but, you know, by and large, it's still the same. And, um, yeah, it's fun to have those conversations because you can kind of tell where those kids, you know, you can kind of gauge their mindset and see where they want to go and what they want to do. And, you know, and you can kind of, you can just feed it to them straight, just tell them, yeah, it's going to be hard, but you know, the rewards on the backside of it are tremendous. I mean, you'll make these relationships and, you know, but it's also not for everybody. So you have to be prepared for that, that part of it too. Totally agree. Okay. So Memorial day, um, is there anything, you know, for all of us that, yes, we live in an incredible country. We absolutely do. Um, but do you think, I think that sometimes things are forgotten and this is a day that I think is super important to, 
you know, just remember all things. Is there anything that you want to leave, leave us with today? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a day of reflection. Um, you know, for us, like for, for my family, my kids, especially we, because I'm still out here at Camp Pendleton and the area of Camp Pendleton that I was based out of has a, a, they have a memorial park that has some, um, large memorial concrete, uh, statues and, and plaques and things like that, that are unique to each individual operations that went on. And so, you know, I go up there and I meet some of my friends that I deployed with that are still in the area. And I, I take my kids uh, cause I want them to, to really understand what the day is about and the sacrifice that the individuals on this wall made, you know, for, for the rest of the country and, you know, for our way of life. And so, yeah, we go up there, you know, we have a beer usually and maybe a cigar. And then, you know, I, you know, the kids are now at the age where they can understand more and more what it's about. And they don't, they don't fight me on it as much as going up for a boring, you know, 45 minutes with a bunch of people they don't really know. But, uh, but yeah, we do that. And then we have another cool spot here in San Diego, um, place called Mount Soledad. It's a, a cross up on top of a hill. And if members, members of not only the armed services, but other government organizations, if they're, you know, if they're killed or even post, you know, after they die, they can have a memorial plaque that's put up there by their families. And we have another friend that was, was killed in a different incident. Um, in my group of friends that's out here. And so we usually go up there in the afternoons with that group of friends and, you know, we'll have a beer up there and, and, you know, just memorialize him the way that, the way that he should be. So, um, you know, the day is really about that reflection and just, you know, paying tribute to, to those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. Okay. Well, I appreciate you giving, um, so much of your life to that. And for everyone that you know, the people that you've led, I mean, I think it's incredible. I think anyone that joins the military is just it's such a sacrifice for all of us for every day. And so I, I appreciate you jumping on today. I loved it. Yeah, John, I just wanted to, to thank you for your service. I, I did this. The statistic is maybe 1% of the American public is in the military. Is that about right? Yeah, that's the stat that I seem to see that rolls around most of the way is, is about 1% of our population at some point has served. Yeah. So, you know, the 1% is doing the work for 100% of us. And we just thank you for your service. And uh, yeah, such a huge sacrifice. Well, yeah, it was it was definitely my honor. Like I said earlier, I, I mean, the honor of being able to to lead Marines and, and see them do the amazing things that they did is it's really beyond words because it, it's an incredible experience. Thanks so much to Captain John McKinley for being with us today. In the show notes, there's a link to his website. He owns and operates uh, a business called Allegiance Supply. Check it out there. And also, there is a discount code for Vibrant Body Company and Hue & Grace, Greener Grass, if you want to get a little discount there. And um, join our newsletter so you can hear from us two times a month. Please honor us with a five-star rating and a review anywhere you get your podcasts. We love you forever, and we really appreciate you. Thank you for being here. This is Greener Grass. Greener Grass.